From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with David Windsor. Well, golf season may be winding down in Park City, but it's in full swing in Vietnam. And that's where local resident Scott Resch will focus on during his debut season of his new business, Asia Golf Trips. Then Dr. Jonathan Shakespeare from Intermountain Health will talk about Breast Cancer Awareness Month and a new MRI technology that improves breast cancer detection. And finally, 97-year-old psychiatrist and National Book Award winner Dr. Robert J. Lifton joins with a powerful and timely rumination on how we can draw on historical examples of survivor power. It's in his new book, Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. These guests, when we return, you're listening to The Mountain Life on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm David Windsor. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. As the days get shorter and the temperature begins to drop in Park City, one longtime local is hoping to promise the world-class golf in a warm weather climate that will appeal to all golfers with a desire to swing before spring. Forget the usual places, Arizona, Florida, Mexico. Our next guest, Scott Resch, is taking golfers to a destination he believes has more game than any other place on earth, Asia. Scott joins us now. Scott, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks for having me on. What an interesting concept. What, what sparked this idea for you, Scott? A few things. And as I started to look at what maybe the next chapter might be for me, I started to think about rather than throwing my hat into the ring with, you know, a million other people for what what's what's out there, I thought, well, what do I, I, I started to ask myself, what do I know that maybe nobody else knows? What sort of knowledge can I bring to the table that maybe um, would be useful in this next chapter? And so I just kept coming back to this for 11 years, between 2007 and 2018. I worked for a media relations company that the bulk of their clientele was based in Asia. And I lived in Asia from a period uh, for about a four year period from 2007 to 11, um, getting to know that um, clientele and getting to know the lay of the land there for this media relations company. And uh, a big part of that job was setting journalists up with trips to that part of the world so that they could then go back to whoever it was they were writing for magazines, newspapers, and write stories on those destinations. So I really had to become in that 11 year period, someone who was very well versed in not only what the greatest assets were from a tourism standpoint, but how you get around, how do you get from one place to the next? And uh, so that I could build these itineraries for them and say, hey, look, if this is the type of piece you're looking to write about, these are the places you need to hit up and this is how long it's going to take you. And so it was sort of already built in as a business, you know, uh, idea. I'd done it for so long and I thought, well, why not offer this sort of thing to people that want to go and experience these places. And so that's where it all kind of came from. I love that. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you through the community of golf and playing a lot of golf with you over the years. What is it about Asia that is different than other golf courses? Is is it more accessible as far as price point goes and as far as the style of golf? Is it is it a, a combination of everything around the world or what's different about Asia than anywhere else? You know, I think, well, there's a lot of things. Um, one is there's a newness to parts of Southeast Asia. There's, there's a freshness to, for a while there within the last like 10, 15 years, um, the level of development um, as, as it relates to golf courses over there uh, was higher than anywhere else. So you've got so many new courses, new options, and designed by some of the greatest names in golf, you know, Jack Nicklaus, Greg Norman, uh, Nick Faldo, Lee Trevino, all these guys that, you know, were, were anybody who golfs, uh, you know, their household names. So it's, the quality is there as well, but you, these are new courses uh, that are, and, and most of them built along coastlines um, in Vietnam, especially, which I think is just the most um, um, compelling um golf destination in Southeast Asia. You've got these links courses on the ocean, you know, uh, similar in style to what, you know, we've all seen in Scotland and Bandon Dunes, but the difference being you're playing these courses in warm weather 
not bitter cold or driving rain. And you're playing with caddies that are in a lot of ways new to the game and therefore uh, very enthusiastic. They're in a lot of ways, they're kind of learning uh, at the same time you're playing and there's this smile that's just uh, ever present, which just, uh, it's hard to describe. It's really neat versus sort of the irritated and arrogant caddies that you can get elsewhere in the world. Um, <laughs> so you've got that part. And then, you know, really, um, as I talk to more people that have expressed interest in this, it's, it's, it's the off course activities that, uh, appeal to a lot of people. It's like, well, if I'm going to go all that way to play golf, uh, gosh, I've heard the food over there is amazing. I really want to, you know, get into as much of that as I can. Um, obviously the tours, the historic sites, uh, it's just such a compelling part of the world, the history. Um, and a lot of us, uh, you know, that have never gotten over that part of the world. Um, yeah. people that I talked to would say, Oh, I had no idea it had all that stuff. Um, the, the history there is, is quite rich. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Scott Resch. He's the owner of a new business called Asia Golf Trips. Scott, I'm wondering, okay, so you've played everywhere in the world, really, from yeah. Australia and South Africa and Hawaii and Pebble Beach and, and Scotland. I, I guess, you know, it's new to me and maybe because I'm not an avid golfer, but mm -hmm. to know that this, I mean, is this just a, an emerging market? You say you've walked 60 different fairways in yeah. Asia or Vietnam. Yeah, in Asia, uh, across Southeast Asia. I still haven't really dug into Japan yet, but that's on the list. Um, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of old uh, top 100 courses in Japan, but uh, yeah. Uh, it's an emerging market the for like i said for a while there there was so much development and there continues to be um, um that's where um you know so much of the, the the golf course development money is going just because these are you know vietnam just to give you an example um really didn't open up into the world open up to the world post uh, Vietnam War until the late 90s and even then it took several years to sort of kick in so when my wife and I moved there in 2007 we were really just seeing the beginning of not just you know golf course development over there but hotel and resort development so many of the clients that I had while working over there were in that space as well and so there's just this real newness to and they look around and they think well you know well there's some there's uh, um, you know, a lot been a lot's been done in places like Singapore and Hong Kong. These are first world places. They've they've had these th this chance to sort of look around them, uh, these bordering countries, and see what's worked and what hasn't, and and then build their sort of growth growth plans from that. So, yeah, mm -hmm. emerging market is 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 the best way to put it, and, and continues to be. Obviously, there was a little, there was a slowdown. I think everywhere uh, during COVID, but um, I think things are picking back up. And um, <clears throat> there are a couple uh, golf course design groups that have um, that have been engaged that have started that have started on massive plans, and they're like maybe twenty percent through those plans, where it's like we're going to build eight, nine courses um, in in a couple different areas as uh, for uh, an ownership group and. They, they've maybe done two so far, but the plan is to do some more on, on their behalf. So, yeah. Where is this investment coming from? Um, all over. You know, there is a lot of new wealth in these places, uh, you know, Vietnam especially, um, you know, but coming from all over, uh, India, Malaysia are investing in uh, places like Vietnam especially um, a lot. I can uh, attest about the the quality of Vietnam, at least for the teacher standpoint. I remember Scott went to Vietnam and he got a lesson and he came back and he was a yeah. brand new golfer. <laughs> yeah. Overnight, we're like, man, we all got to go to Vietnam to get this yeah. lesson. There was a bit of breakthrough for me and it was came from out of nowhere. I was working with this co course uh, in Southern Vietnam that was just about to open. It was a Greg Norman design and there was a, a, a an instructor that had come out to open a, a teaching academy and he was actually from the UK just outside of London and he pulled me aside and said hey if you're going to be you know generating some some press about this place you know getting the word out about us i really want you to know about this 
facility that we're opening as part of the golf course. And so he took me through, I, I'm not even kidding. It was no more than 30 minutes, David. And, and I was just like, Oh my God. And you, and I got to see myself on video versus what I looked like before. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I've, all this time. I thought I knew I was, or I thought I was on the right track and I wasn't even close. <laughs> yeah. I could see, I, I saw the difference. <laughs> Walk us through the business model of this Scott, as far as if, if Lynn and I are clients and we want to go golf, in Asia and we want to use your service. What is, how does it work? Well, you, you contact me. <laughs> we talk through what it is you're looking for. I, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot as I've started to, to push this out there is um, I would be interested. Um, I don't know if my wife would let me go. Or, you know, we've got kids. We can't go be, uh, we can't leave for that long or uh, you know what she if she could go with me but she doesn't like to play golf um would you be able to uh you know customize something for us uh, so that you know maybe me and my friends will go out and play and then they can do their thing and so the answer to that is yes i'm not, it's not plastered all over my website but the answer to the question is yes and and, and in fact my wife has a my wife claire is a big uh, part of that um because she uh, spent so much time with me over there and getting to know sort of those other things that uh, are available to you, whether it be tours and, um, you know, just all the various sightseeing activities, the spas, um, and as part of uh, representing five-star hotels over there for so long, those are the types of things that I needed to get to know very well myself um, in, order, in order to promote them um, through the media. So... Um, I would say, yeah, reach out to me. Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about what you're interested in. Let's talk about what you're, you know, maybe there are particular time frames that work better for you versus what I have advertised. And what I have advertised with this first season is starting in January, I'd like to run three trips between then and May, because once you get beyond May over there, you run the risk of, uh, it definitely becomes hotter. You're getting closer to 100 degrees uh, during the day versus 85, 90. And then you also have a much higher uh, chance of get, getting stuck in a, a afternoon rainstorm. And, and so obviously things that aren't as conducive to golf. So I'd really like to try and keep, you know, if people are going to sign up for a trip like this, go all that way, I want them to have the best experience possible and not have to have those risks. Uh, Scott, are you participating in all these trips with your with Yeah, your to start out with, for sure. The, these first several trips might even be the first two or three years. Because I've been, I've spent so much time there um, in that part of the world, and I know not just all the people, you know, at the properties that I have a setup at, but also, you know, what it takes to get around. And and, and also, the little things can happen um, in that part of the world. And, and I just think, you know, whether it be like maybe a driver not showing up uh, right on time, me being there, being able to say to the group, look, give me five minutes to, to, to find out what happened here and just, you know, everything will be fine, rather than laying that on that responsibility on someone else. That's something I'm very comfortable in handling. And really, you know, also the other part of that would be, I want to be there for these first several trips anyway, just to sort of get everyone's feedback, get just get the feel of what it is that people really are liking, maybe what I might want to think about changing, um, all that sort of stuff. So being there with them on the ground, escorting people from place to place, I think is very key part of this uh, offering, at least for the first couple of years, I think. So Scott, these tours will be about eight days, as you say, yeah. it's golf and culture. If we're unfamiliar with Vietnam geography, it's my understanding you fly into Ho Chi Minh City and then you go north and you're along the coast. Yeah. Tell us more about the geography. About, uh, you know, and I'm starting with, I should probably say this, I'm starting with Vietnam just because I personally believe of all the countries I've played over there, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Hong Kong, that it's the most compelling. And I think, and not just from a golf standpoint, but across the board. And I'm a little bit biased because I did, of those four years I lived over there, two of them were spent in Vietnam and I got to know every you know square inch of the place. So I'm starting there. Vietnam, best way to think of it for someone who's never been there, if, 
it's the same size as California, roughly. Uh, same size and shape, but only flipped horizontally, kind of. So if you think of it that way, you've got this long coastline, and north to south, you've got, or yeah, you would start in the south in Ho Chi Minh City, work your way north. Uh, you really don't have to go farther than the central part to get all the great golf that you need. But if you wanted to carry on, go north to Hanoi, which is the capital of the country, there's a lot there too. So, but for eight days, you need to factor in a little bit of time to get around, focusing on those two destinations within Vietnam. Um, to begin with, if people want to do a longer trip, do do either a pre or post trip or or both. But for the base trip, I'm offering it's an eight day trip at the moment. And like I said, you know, me being over there, people as I'm over there and getting their feedback, that could change based on what people think. Um, you know, it should be. So you're a longtime Park City resident, and as you say, you've worked in basically golf media for a very long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and yeah, uh, how it relates to golf? Yeah, it's interesting. So I grew up in Seattle, went to University of Washington, graduated, and my first job out of school was with uh, ESPN's, ESPN.com. And at that time, uh, the Paul Allen um, of Microsoft, he owned the publishing company that had the rights to those major sports sites, and they were, the offices were all in Seattle. So I was lucky enough to get a start there. And from there, you know, that led to some other sort of sports media gigs. And then in 2003, a friend who I'd worked with out there had moved out here and he called me and he said, there's a, a magazine publishing group out here that is looking for an editor in chief for at least one of the magazines that we're publishing out here. I thought it was really interesting and I, you know, the, the opportunity sounded interesting and I came out here for a quick visit. The publisher flew me out. We had a meeting and the next day I had a job offer and I moved out here sight unseen and for a couple of years there edited uh, two golf magazines. One was called Luxury Golf and Travel and the other one was Nicholas, Jack Nicholas's magazine. During the course of the, what would it have been, two years of being in that position, I was approached by an agency based here in the States, actually out on the East Coast, that was putting out invitations to select media to do a trip out to Vietnam to see some of the golf courses that were being developed out there. And I was one of the golf journalists or editors that was invited on that trip. And so I got the go ahead to do it and spent 10, I think 10 or 11 days on that trip in 2006. And during the course of that trip, the, the two guys who had started that company <laughs> approached me and said, you really get what we're doing here. And you seem really uh, excited about, you know, this trip. What would you think about working with us? <laughs> and so that conversation evolved and within a year, they had offered me a job to, to come work with them with the caveat being that I actually moved to Asia so that I could be closer to our clientele and to get to know the lay of the land in order to be able to uh, really pitch it to other journalists that maybe might have an interest in that part of the world. So that's kind of how it all evolved and did that for 11 years before switching gears in 2018 for a little while. Sounds like you got your credibility credentials over the last few years. Scott, mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is a really interesting business model and the fact that you get to travel to Asia and go play golf, it kind of makes me jealous of my business choices. <laughs> and, but I'm curious, one, what is the model moving forward? I mean, you're going to be traveling with these people, but is it eventually just to be like a concierge type service? And then two, where is your website and where can people go find you to start booking these trips? Yeah, I think concierge is a good way to put it. I really have been asked this question a couple of times already. The idea of, of, of scaling it in a way where I've really got to think about hiring a bunch of people and, you know, spending long hours every day throughout the year uh, organizing. Okay, let's see. Well, now we've got 15 trips on the books this year. That's really not a place I want to go at this point. I really want to focus on seeing if I can generate three or four a year, no more than eight people per trip. That's another thing I learned when I was running these trips for the media. Once you get over a couple of foursomes, it becomes a lot diff more difficult to manage. And I think everybody's experience goes down too. So keeping it more intimate in that way, you know, in, in running the numbers, you know, to make this viable for me, 
I don't need more than three, four groups of eight per year to make it worthwhile. So for me, it's let's start this thing small. Let's make it very intimate. Let's make it everything that someone would want in a in a, a trip of a lifetime. Think about expansion later if it becomes something where I've got, you know, directors of golf or whatever coming to me and saying, hey, I've got 30 people at my club that want to do this next year. Cross that bridge when I get there, right? That'd be a nice thing to have to worry about at that point. But at this point, like I said, keeping it small. And then as far as where you can where you can find me, I've got a website that's all built out, building it out even more each day, but uh, it's at asiagolftrips.com. Local resident Scott Resch, asiagolftrips.com. Thank you, Scott, for joining us on The Mountain Life today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great talking to you. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime, but early detection and regular screening gives much better outcomes, as does new technology. Joining us now from Intermountain Health is Dr. Jonathan Shakespeare, a radiologist who talks about the fast MRI. It's another option after mammogram for certain women with certain conditions. Stay tuned to see if you're one of those. Dr. Jonathan Shakespeare, welcome to The Mountain Life. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting news. Anytime that we can come up with a new technology for faster, better, more accurate detection, um, of course, that's what we want. Can you tell us more about the accuracy of this fast MRI? Fast MRI is targeted specifically at making two things better. So conventional MRI for um, breast cancer screening is an excellent test. The two issues with it is number one, it's kind of a long exam. It's uh, 45 minutes in the, uh, or, or 30 to 45 minutes for that exam. And if you've ever had an MRI before, that can be a long time to be in the scanner. Um, and most of the women who end up needing that exam are getting it on a yearly basis. So um, whatever we can do to shorten the exam time we want to do. So number one, um, th that's the number one weakness is it's kind of a long exam. Uh, the second drawback to MRI, conventional MRI, which is an excellent exam, is that it's pretty expensive. Uh, so uh, fast MRI is a very tailored exam for the screening setting, for the breast cancer screening setting, uh, which is much shorter. It's a 10 to 15 minute exam, and it's much less expensive as well. Um, even better, it's, um, it's covered by uh, some insurance providers, and we hope that in the future it will be even more broadly covered. Uh, so it won't be any expense at all or a minimal expense to most people. And John, you as a radiologist, how long have you been working within this realm of uh, breast cancer screening and mammograms and that whole world? Uh, so I've been here at Intermountain um, for 12 years. John, tell me this. So when I know as we talk about this fast MRI, like obviously life does get busy and people forget to schedule their appointments. Is there a statistic or a percentage of women that forget or fail to get their yearly screening? And will this fast MRI, you think, alleviate some of that? Uh, so fast MRI is specifically intended for women who are at higher risk for breast cancer. So uh, women who are at average risk for breast cancer, their recommendation is still the same. Uh, and that recommendation is starting yearly screening mammography at age 40. Um, and then for women who are at higher risk, in addition to yearly screening mammography, they will also get yearly screening breast MRI. And you guys are offering extended hours for this as well. Is that correct? Uh, we're offering extended hours for uh, screening mammography. That is correct. So at Park City Hospital, uh, typically they're open uh, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they will be open until 8 p.m. to just be a little more flexible for uh, women who don't have time during the day to schedule those appointments. If you have been through, if you're a woman and you've been through this whole world of getting mammograms on an annual basis, 
you know a little bit more about maybe the evolution of the the technology. It seems to me that there was a 2D for a while and, and you could only get a sort of a 3D screening if you went to Huntsman. Can you take us through the evolution of the technology for, for breast screening? Yeah, sure. So um, initially, mammography was offered using film. If uh, people remember the good old days of going to the dentist and they have the, you could smell the developer, uh, they would develop little films of your teeth. We did that in radiology departments as well. And those were good systems, um, but they had some limitations. Then those systems were replaced by digital systems. So instead of um, the images being captured on a plastic film, the images were captured on digital detectors, just like, you know, kind of fancy digital cameras. And those were 2D images or uh, kind of like a conventional X-ray type um, uh, picture. And then within the last decade, tomosynthesis or 3D mammography has come into play. And uh, so in addition to the 2D image, the radiologist also has a 3D image. So um, basically it's kind of the same concept as a uh, CAT scan where there are slices through the structure. Um, one, one way I like to think of it is imagine if you have a, a book that's made up of pages, but they're clear and all of the all of the text in the book overlaps um, and if you look at that book that with all of that overlapping text that's kind of like a 2d mammogram and with a 3d mammogram we're able to open that book page by page and look at the text on the pages so it's a more powerful technique for us to be able to identify um, breast cancers it's such a good way to give people an image of how much more clearly you can detect. So you as a radiologist, uh, Dr. Shakespeare, are the person that reads the, the mammogram that comes in. Yeah. Can you talk to us about, you know, what you're seeing now as the as we are developing new technology, we have the fast MRI, how it facilitates your, <laughs> makes your job easier, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so um, one of the limitations of mammography is breast density. So um, um, breast tissue in uh, very simple terms is um, can appear black or gray on a mammogram. And so all of the black corresponds to fatty tissue in the breast and all of the gray corresponds to the uh, fibroglandular tissue in the breast. And um, uh, cancers are also grayish white. And so um, on a mammogram, we have to depend on changes um, that that cancer causes, um, making a, a, a gray or white uh, little mass on the mammogram. And if you have a lot of that uh, fibroglandular tissue, you're looking for something that's that's gray on a gray background. So it can be very tricky. Um, uh, 3D mammograms make it easier because um, uh, as you're opening up the pages, you're more likely to see areas where it's not exactly gray on gray. There will be some black surrounding most cancers and they're easier to identify. So that's mammography and um, women with um, dense breast tissue are just not as well served by mammography. It's still a valuable test, but it's less valuable uh, than in women who aren't so dense. Uh, so that's where, um, that's where uh, MRI plays a role. So in women who have very dense breast tissue and in women who are at high risk, who often also have very dense breast tissue, we're not looking for changes um, that look white on white or gray on gray. We're looking, for, um, we're looking for changes in blood flow, basically. So cancers, um, one unique quality of cancers is that they develop um, new blood vessels and those vessels are often leaky. 
And so on MRI, we can see um, that unique characteristic of cancers. So um, instead of looking for something that is just a little bit different from the background, we're able to see just a white spot on a black background. That's, that's often how cancer looks on MRI. Uh, so it, it's a very powerful tool for detecting additional, additional cancers in that group. And John, there's there's a there's a questionnaire as well that the a risk assessment calculator that women can go and do. It's like a 10 year lifetime risk yeah. for their development of breast cancer, their family medical history, their density, um, all these things. And so, where can these women? Where I mean, I, I don't even want to pronounce the name of this questionnaire, but where can people find this questionnaire, and how can they start you know assessing their risk? So it's the Tyracusic assessment, um, and at all Intermountain facilities, when you have a mammogram, this assessment will be automatically done for you. You can also get this done. You can ask your regular, your primary care provider about uh, doing this uh, survey as well. Uh, you can search for it online. It's often under the IBIS questionnaire and you can fill it out and it will basically um, produce a lifetime risk estimate for uh, risk of breast cancer. And uh, any woman that is 20 to 25% lifetime risk uh, is considered high risk and uh, would be a candidate for additional screening with breast MRI. Now with your history in the medical field in this in this particular arena, have we seen advancements in the technology? Are we starting to see easier ways to detect things early on and and what is Intermountain doing to to help facilitate that? Uh, so um, I think as we talked about earlier, the now 3D mammography is broadly available. It was just originally available uh, here in Salt Lake and at kind of select locations, but now throughout the Intermountain system, it's broadly available. Also, um, in uh, outside of Intermountain as well, um, it's it's relatively broadly available uh, as just your regular mammogram, um, and we're trying to roll out uh, breast MRI throughout the state and throughout the entire region covered by Intermountains to make that available for women who need it. So, Dr. Shakespeare, I, it's my understanding that you've been using this at Park City Hospital for about, the, excuse me, the fast MRI at Park City Hospital for about the last year or so. And it's also starting to become available outside the Intermountain Health System. Is, is that right? I know. So I don't know about outside of the system. To my knowledge, uh, we were definitely one of the first groups to start offering it. We started at the breast care center at Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake. And uh, we've been gradually rolling it out uh, after we've piloted uh, that here. I, I hope it becomes broadly available at all, any place that does MRI screening. Um, I think that this is the preferred test because it is so much shorter, it's uh, so much less, uh, less expensive and it's equally uh, effective with conventional MRI. So it's basically just a win-win-win mm -hmm. uh, for we need to go through MRI screening. So when I first saw this questionnaire, and it, I, admittedly it was a couple of weeks ago, so I don't remember, I went, I took it, and I can't remember what my score was, but I do have two paternal aunts who had breast cancer, which I thought would uh, kind of turned me out as maybe more high risk. I, it was surprising. However, if someone like me with, you know, some family history goes to get your annual mammogram, are they going to necessarily kick you into the camp? I suppose they evaluate your breast density first, and then they may say, you need to go on and get the fast MRI. Is that sort of how it works? Or yeah, I mean, how how do they determine when you go for your mammogram if you'll need this? Yeah, so um, we do have, we try to make it easy for women who need uh, breast MRI in addition to mammography. Uh, so um, we have a number of things that we can offer them. 
Uh, some people like time to think about it, and it's perfectly fine. Um, you know, some people may not choose, even though they are at higher risk, they may not choose to go forward with additional screening with MRI. Um, we also have a high-risk clinic uh, that has a dedicated nurse practitioner uh, that they can uh, speak with and that can arrange any additional testing or screening that they might need. And also at many of the uh, centers, uh, we can schedule an MRI for them if they request it when we tell them about their risk status. So a lot of options. Nor can I, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shakespeare, tell us if women are just, if you know their availability to healthcare or their finances or things that they're lacking, where can they go to get screenings and make sure that they're caught up every year? Basically, any place that provides screening, they do it without a doctor's order. You do not, uh, so so that's one thing that is a is an obstacle to a lot of women. They feel like, oh, I haven't seen my doctor recently. I don't have an order for this test. I don't I don't have uh, anything like that. They think of it like like a lab test, for example. Uh, mammography is different. Uh, so you can schedule a screening mammogram without a physician's order. And actually, you don't even have to have a primary physician to order a screening mammogram. Uh, so you can identify the facility that you want to have your screening, where you want to have your screening, and uh, contact them to schedule it. So uh, Intermountain tries to make it easy. Um, Intermountainhealthcare.org slash mammogram. Um, and you can schedule your mammogram right there online. You don't have to go through a scheduler or anything. So that's intermountainhealthcare.org slash mammogram. And uh, again, you don't have to have a, a provider's order to schedule that. Um, the other thing is screening is uh, if you have any form of health insurance, screening is uh, covered under that plan. The, the Affordable Care Act has a stipulation that screening mammography is, should be a covered service. So you've talked about um, so far in the interview, John, that this fast MRI does not take the place of a mammogram. However, you're saying it's much more cost effective than a mammogram. If you are someone who doesn't have great health insurance or any health insurance, you're paying out of pocket, you know, isn't that person going to be more attracted to the fast MRI? And I don't, I have no idea what the costs are because, you know, you don't see what the costs are when your insurance pays for it. Could you comment on that? Uh, so a uh, point of clarification. So fast MRI is much more cost effective than conventional screening MRI, not mammography. Okay. Uh, so, um, that's that's an important point. The it, it would be very nice if mem, if MRI for the women who needed it, uh, if that completely replaced the need for mammography. It would be great if it were an either or proposition. Unfortunately, there are some cancers that are better depicted on mammogram than MRI. Many more cancers are better depicted on MRI than mammogram, but if we only do MRI in the high-risk population, we will miss some cancers that we do not want to miss. So screening MRI is done in the population for whom it's recommended uh, in addition to mammography, not in place of. Okay. Thanks for that point of clarification. I had misunderstood. So one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Is that number on the rise? So the lifetime risk of breast cancer, that's correct. One in eight, around 12, 13%. That number was rising. It was increasing quite significantly. In the 80s, uh, there actually with the advent or with the rollout of mammography, the, the number, the diagnosis of breast cancer became more common because all of the sudden we, we were diagnosing women who would have been diagnosed a few years down the road earlier. Uh, so there was a spike. 
then there's been a slight increase, but very, very minor increase in the incidence of breast cancer overall. Uh, importantly, with advances in treatment for breast cancer and um, broad adoption of screening mammography, the mortality rate or the, the chances of dying from breast cancer uh, in women who are undergoing screening has significantly decreased. So in, in populations that are getting screening compared to populations that aren't, you're 30% to 50% less likely to die from breast cancer. Uh, that's that's what uh, motivates uh, me to do what I do is I know that even though um, it's it's a hassle to get that yearly mammogram, it's not anyone's favorite thing to do. But if you stick with it, you are you're part of a group that is much less likely to die of breast cancer. There were during COVID, you know, we weren't getting our annual mammograms, and I know there was. There was sort of a, a buildup of, you know, people once we could go back in the hospitals and, and get mammograms. I believe that I read that the statistic had kind of come up for incidents of breast cancer because of that, because of delayed screenings. Is that something, is that a real statistic? I'm not sure about um, what our numbers show, but definitely we felt like we had a little bit of a bump because we were there was somewhat of a delay in women getting screening and even women with lumps um you know some of them decided that they would just kind of hold off on seeing a uh, a doctor for a few months um and so definitely when women started getting mammograms again and when women started coming back to see us, we saw uh, kind of a lot of cancers all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I, I can I can definitely say anecdotally we saw that. I haven't dug into our numbers uh, to see that nicely on a graph, but I, I would assume that that bump is there. And then finally, are there certain breast cancers that will not be detected by mammography? Uh, yes, um, that's we wish that we had a perfect test for um, breast cancer. And the perfect test, what it would look like is that it, it is that whenever you had a breast cancer, it would always detect it. And whenever you didn't have a breast cancer, it would always be negative. So um, mammography is, a good test and it provides good results, like I said, a, a 30 to 50% reduction in the chance of dying from breast cancer. So that's a very solid, measurable, desirable result. Um, but um, there are definitely cancers that we cannot see. It's that gray on gray effect and we just we can't see the cancer. Um, there are also can there are also changes in the breast that can occur that are not cancer. So um, women, uh, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners will have had the experience of getting a phone call from us and saying, "Hey, there's been a change on your mammogram. We want to take a closer look." They've been very nervous, and then they came in and had a workup, and we showed that everything was okay. So. Um, uh, mammography does have false negatives and false positive results. Um, we wish it didn't. We wish it were perfect, but um, we've got a lot of techniques to work within the parameters of mammography and try to maximize its benefits. Very interesting and an interesting career you've chosen. Thank you for being in this position. And radiologist Dr. Jonathan Shakespeare is our guest We've been talking about Breast Cancer Awareness Month at Intermountain Park City Hospital and offering extended hours. Just coincidentally, I booked my annual mammogram and I was so happy they offered me a 7 p.m. slot. And I went, wow, that really nice. is really nice. Very, very convenient. Mm -hmm. And again, those hours, those extended hours are just going all through October. That's correct. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life today, full of good information. All right, thank you for having me. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. What is survivor power? We're going to find out from our next guest, psychiatrist 
and National Book Award-winning author Robert J. Lifton, who has spent his career studying trauma in seminal works about the survivors of disasters, catastrophes like Hiroshima, Nazi death camps, and more. His new book is called Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Robert, welcome to The Mountain Life. It's nice to have you. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. Excellent. What is survivor power? Survivor power is a result of the transformation of people from helpless victims, which they can be, as for instance in Hiroshima or Nazi death camps, transformation into life-enhancing survivors. That transformation is key, and it makes use of what I call survivor power and survivor wisdom. The power and wisdom uh, emerges from the actual experience of the dreaded catastrophe, and the uh, power emerges from that transformation into life-affirming people who take the lead, as in Hiroshima, for instance, in telling the world about the catastrophe, in this case, the first use of a nuclear weapon, and becoming leaders of peace movements, bearing witness to what they have actually experienced. You, Robert, as I said in the intro, you're a psychiatrist. You're also a pioneer in the field of psychohistory. And of course, that makes perfect sense, just even in the couple minutes that you have been talking. It seems to me that this, your whole premise can also run parallel, even in those lives of people who have not been in catastrophe. It's it feels like you're talking about victimhood or transforming victimhood. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I am. It's uh, crucial that one depicts very specifically the process by which this transformation can occur. And you mentioned my method, which is what I call psychohistorical. That simply means taking history into account as well as psychological events. Psychological events in history and history in all of us. More than generally realized, we are creatures of our history. It's not only that history is a kind of background, but rather is a powerful element in anyone living in a particular era. So, This kind of psychohistorical approach has been crucial for me in all of my work. So you, as we talk about that history is always intensified by the movement of a generation, history obviously tends to repeat itself. And catastrophes, natural disasters, pandemics, wars, they're all part of history, unfortunately, just with political power. And in your experience, do you feel that as a human race, we are becoming more or less adaptable to these threats like pandemics and wars? Uh, We're faced more and more with these threats, and it's hard to judge how adaptable we're becoming. The argument of my book is that we must indeed confront our catastrophes. We must recognize that they exist before we can have survivors whose legacy means so much. In Hiroshima, for instance, nobody could deny that the bomb had been dropped, but right-wing nationalists, white supremacists, can deny that we are involved in a great COVID catastrophe. They can even deny that the vaccine is useful and in fact can make the uh, false claim that the vaccine is what is harmful and not the COVID. So we stumble along, sometimes doing better and sometimes doing worse uh, in regard to dealing with these matters. But there's never any moment where we've solved our relation to our catastrophes. It's an ongoing issue. So when I have friends or students who have gone to demonstrations 
and they say, well, what's the use? I went to these demonstrations and it's still all happening. My answer is that there's no particular moment, a sartori moment of resolution where everything is solved, but rather it's an ongoing process of seeking to sustain the reality of our catastrophes and the possibilities of bringing truth-telling and the rule of law uh, to their confrontation. As we enter into the super and hyper advanced technological era with AI, is do you think that the threat for catastrophes are more in front of our face than ever? And are we prepared to handle these types of technological threats and catastrophes that are inevitably going to head our way? It, it, it's an enormous challenge and uh, very dangerous. AI adds a dimension of the removal of personal decisions uh, and uh, a robot-like uh, effort at control of uh, the process of history or generations. There are struggles now to try to make use of AI in constructive ways, but that's not very easy. Essentially, it's a complicating force, uh, and it applies very much to nuclear and climate and in different ways to COVID and to the disaster that we haven't yet mentioned, which is the threat to destroy our democracy on the part of Trumpists and their allies, destroy it by insisting upon uh, some kind of uh, kleptocracy in which we have uh, in which we have dictators uh, and the centrality of making money uh, and the uh, extreme inequality uh, that we find in our society. So all these complicate things in this ongoing struggle we have uh, to sustain what I speak of as our battered institutions. Battered they are, but they still have significance, as we see uh, in the indictments uh, of people who have broken laws by Jack Smith or, or by uh, the prosecutor in Georgia or by other prosecutors who go by facts and evidence and truth. And that and, and therein lies our hope to sustaining uh, our uh, democracy and overcoming that particular potential uh, catastrophe. The book is Surviving Our Catastrophes, Resilience and Renewal from Hiroshima to the COVID-19 Pandemic. Our guest is Robert J. Lifton. Robert, thank you so much for your time this morning on The Mountain Life. Thank you. I've appreciated our discussion. And thanks to our guest, Robert J. Lifton. And that is an excerpt from a full interview that you can find on kpcw.org under the Shows tab and The Mountain Life. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City 93.3.